There's always one last one coming. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3 is where we are at. We started a series a few weeks ago, and uh, we're going to continue in that. So let me just give a quick reminder, as we did take a couple weeks of a break from being in Galatians. Uh, False teachers have come to the church of Galatia, and they have preached a false gospel. Now, they have not denied Jesus, but they have denied the sufficiency of Jesus. Jesus is good, but he's just not good enough to save. The false teachers have said, you you need to add works to your faith if you are to be saved and be righteous before God. And so if if I could illustrate that, imagine a town in the mountains. It's only accessed by by one road. There are no other roads or means of getting to this town. But you say, I think I'll get there by train. And so you you pack your bags, you enter the train, you take your seat on the train. um, But you cannot and will not get to the destination because there are no train tracks leading to the town. And so the train would be a foolish means of transportation when the only means of getting there is through a vehicle, through a car. And so in our text, Paul is going to show it's absolutely foolish to think that you can be saved or justified when the, by your works, when the only means to be saved is through the cross of Jesus Christ. So he wants us to know everything else is foolish. There's only one means. And if you're here and you're a believer today, meaning you've already trusted in Jesus Christ, I, I want to encourage you just pay special attention to the argument that Paul makes here. He's going to quote extensively from the Old Testament in just a few verses that we're looking at. This means he's expecting his readers to recognize these texts, to understand the Old Testament context in which they come from. He's expecting them to know God's word and the way to overcome false teaching is through the knowledge of God's word. False teaching existed 2,000 years ago. We see it existed all throughout the Old Testament, and it exists today. And I would say, if anything, it's more prevalent today simply because of the many, many means of communication that we have uh, available to us today. A robust knowledge of God's word not only keeps us from falling into false teaching, but it also is a means to help us guide others to saving faith in Christ also. So it's so important. We know God's word. So pay attention to how Paul makes his argument today. The main point that we're going to see today is that faith in the cross of Jesus redeems us from the curse of the law. So we're going to see everything is about the cross of Jesus Christ. If you don't mind, go ahead and stand with me. Each And every morning as we begin the preaching of the word, we stand as a means of recognizing that God's word comes with his full authority for the purpose of equipping us to live the godly life that he has called us to live. Chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let me pray. Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus Christ. We praise you for you alone are God. You've existed for all of eternity. You created everything by the power of your word. You sustain everything by the power of your word. God, may our lips be filled with praise to your name. Father, we acknowledge that we are guilty for denying you. We are guilty for relying on our works as a means of salvation. We confess our sins and acknowledge that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. God, help us to see this truth today. Help us to see the beauty and the goodness of salvation in Jesus today. May we understand the curse of rejecting Jesus and the blessing of believing in Jesus. Give us understanding. Help us to be a humble people who trust in you, who praise you, who proclaim your name to others. God, bless the preaching of your word this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, so I have three questions that I just want to use to walk through the text this morning. Number one, why does salvation have to be by faith? And so we're going to spend this first question is going to take about half of our time because there's a lot that Paul says that we need to understand. In verse 10, Paul says, if you rely on works of the law, you're under a curse. Works of the law, of course, refers specifically to the Old Testament commands God gave to the people of Israel. But in more general terms, it, it means to think that by your effort, by your power, or by your wisdom, that you can save your, yourself. In reality, this, this is how we all live. As people, we are very transactional people. Just, just think about that. We're transactional. If, if we do A, B, and C, I expect to get X, Y, and Z. I go to work. I work hard, I do the things required of me, I then get a paycheck in return. By my effort, power, and wisdom, I earn money. You do the same. We, we do that in many, many of our relationships. If I do X, you'll do Y. But Paul wants us to know, while that might work in many things of the world, that is not how we are saved by God. Not, no one, neither you or me or anyone, can do enough good to earn our salvation. So we're going to say, why? Why can't we rely on works? So Paul gives us two reasons. Number one, we cannot perfectly obey God's law. At the end of verse 10, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 27, 26, and he says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, if you were to go to the back, uh, go to the Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy chapter 27, Moses is preparing the people to go into the promised land, and he gives them this list of curses. And at the end of this list is this final curse, which we've read, verse 26. And the point is that Paul is making whoever does not perfectly obey God's word at all times is cursed. So Paul, based on this truth, then says, verse 11, it's evident, it's obvious no one is justified before God by the law. If you've ever tried to keep the law, you know that can't be the means in which we are justified. So verse 12, Paul then says, the law is not of faith. 
He then quotes from Leviticus 18.5, the one who does them shall live by them, which again, he's making the point that if you are going to earn your salvation by works, then you must perfectly obey the law at all times. Perfect, perpetual obedience. The law is like a taskmaster and it demands perfection. And so we'll come back to that idea of a taskmaster and the idea of it demanding perfection. We'll come back to that later. But this is the exact same thing we read in the New Testament. James, the brother of Jesus, in in chapter 2 of his letter, he says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. One act of obedience means you are guilty of breaking every single one of God's commands. You might say, well, that that seems harsh. Well, it it does, but, but remember, God's commands are not disconnected from one another, but they're all connected in the means in which we love God, honor Him, and worship Him. So the breaking of any one of God's commands would be the disobedience of God because we desire to worship something greater than Him. So any breaking of any one of God's commands is equivalent to breaking all of them. So then you you must ask yourself, well, have I ever lied? Have I ever stolen? Have I ever coveted what someone else had? And you're guilty. Law cries out, guilty. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he helps us to know how, how extensive the law is. In Matthew 5, 21 to 22, he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And so the Old Testament understanding of that was the physical act of murdering was evil, and and it is. But Jesus says the true meaning of that is not just the physical act of murdering, but he says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What Jesus wants us to know, what Paul wants us to know, what James is wanting us to know, is that God's not only concerned with our physical actions, but with our words, with our emotions, and the intentions of our heart. And if we have been unrighteously angry at someone, we're guilty. If we have been careless with our words, we're guilty. If we've lusted after something or someone, we're guilty. You might say, but but no one's perfect. We, We can't do that. We can't uphold this high of a standard. And that's exactly the point Paul is making. No one is strong enough. No one is good enough. No one is wise enough to obey the commands of God as the means of earning their salvation. And that brings us to our next point. The law was not given to make you righteous. Now, there's many people, many Christians, you might be in here, and you have heard or, or thought that in the Old Testament, the means in which you were saved was by obeying God's word. You had to earn it. And in the New Testament, we're now saved by faith. But Scripture says no one has ever been saved by their works, which is why last week, when, when um, or two weeks, when, when Jake preached a while ago, at some point in the past, uh, when he spoke on the life of Abraham, Abraham in the Old Testament was justified by faith. No one has ever been justified before God by their works. So the law was never given to make us righteous. One commentator said it like this, and this this was helpful. So just think about this visual. Trusting in the law 
is like trusting in a rope of sand. It only crumbles and falls when you grab a hold of it. Just think about that. Think, think about this. You have this rope of sand. I don't even know how you'd make that. And then just think, you're just going to grab on it and hold on to it. What would happen as soon as you put your weight onto that rope of sand? It just crumbles. In fact, in the rest of chapter 3, Paul will begin to unpack what the purpose of the law actually was. In verse 19, Paul will say in Galatians 3, he'll say, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, meaning it was given to show how sinful we are. In fact, Romans chapter 4, verse 15, Paul in Romans talks a lot about the purpose of the law. And Paul will say, the law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Meaning, we don't know how sinful we are until there's a law that says don't do these things. And then all of a sudden we see, oh, I do all of those things. I'm very sinful. The law was given not to make us righteous, but to reveal our sinfulness and our need for God's grace. So illustration of this. My wife will love this. She doesn't know I'm going to share this one. She's very, very nervous at the moment. So years ago, I bought a shirt. She knows exactly where I'm going now. And uh, I saw this shirt on the rack, and I thought, this is one great-looking shirt. I love this shirt. My wife comes and says, that's a terrible shirt. It's ugly shirt. Do not buy that shirt. Well, I rightfully ignored her comments <laughs> because she was wrong. And it was a beautiful, amazing shirt. However, we live in what's called the digital age, Everything gets a picture taken of it at some point. And at some point, I saw myself in this shirt in a picture. And at that moment, I agreed with my wife. <laughs> this is a very ugly shirt. The shirt looked terrible. That's how the law works. Left to ourselves, we think we're good. The law functions like a camera, like, like a mirror. It reveals our sinfulness, and it just simply says, Guilty, 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 guilty. This is actually why um, many evangelism strategies will use the law when trying to share the gospel. You begin to talk about the, the Ten Commandments, and as you do that, say, well, have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever done these things? And people go, well, yeah, I've done all those things. So then we're first forced to say, well, well, I might think that I'm righteous, or I might think that I'm innocent, after I realized that, according to God's word, I'm, I'm not innocent. I'm not righteous. So the law acts as a mirror holding up, held up to ourselves, that we would see ourselves accurately as God actually sees us sinful. You might say, okay, so I get it. We're all lawbreakers. We're all sinners. But is that so bad? See, we have a tendency to think that because everyone is a sinner, then it can't be that bad of a thing. But Paul says everyone who relies on the works of the law is cursed. In fact, he'll use the word cursed five times in our text. So it's important that we know what it means because Paul does not want us to miss this word. So what does it mean to be cursed by God? Well, as Paul has already quoted at the end of chapter 27, there's this list of curses. And then as we move into Deuteronomy chapter 28, there's a list of blessings. And then again, he'll give this list of curses, preparing God's people to go into the promised land. 
Moses tells his people that if they obey God, you'll experience blessing. But if you disobey him, you'll experience curses. So let me just read some of the, the, this list of curses. This is how it begins, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 through 20. So think not only what the text says, but what it means. What is Paul covering in these curses here? Or what is Moses as he gives them in Deuteronomy 28? So here we go, chapter 15, or verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commands and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall be upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. So you think, what is he saying here? To be cursed by God is to be the object of his wrath. To be cursed by God is to not receive the blessings of God's presence or God's rule. As Deuteronomy shows, God's curse affects your entire life. Wherever you are, your work, your location, your cooking, your family, your actions, your emotions, your thinking, it, it affects everything about us. To be cursed is to receive no goodness, no love, no grace, and no mercy from God. So in Paul, verse 13, he quotes then from chapter 21, or from Deuteronomy 21. And so he says, those who are cursed are killed and hung on a tree. In fact, in Joshua chapter 8, Israel goes into the promised land. They go against the city of Ai. That's A-I, not E-Y-E. They go against the city of Ai. They defeat them. They then take the king, the one who represents the enemies of God's people, the enemies of God's rule, and they take him and they hang him on a tree to show that God's curse comes upon all people who will not follow and obey God. In the New Testament, Jesus will describe those who are cursed as those who experience darkness and weeping and the gnashing of teeth. To be clear, there's no misunderstanding. To be cursed by God is to spend eternity in hell. Never to experience the slightest relief from the fiery pain and agony of his wrath. That's, that's where Paul wants us to be at this moment. False teachers have come into Galatia. You need to earn your salvation by works. I'm not denying Jesus. He just can't get you all the way there. You need to do works. So Paul says, you want to do works, cursed. If that's the road you want, you're cursed. So Paul's warning us. So everyone in this room, we would not think that on that day that we meet God, whether he, because he returns or because we die and we meet him, that we will stand before him justified on the basis of our works. He says, I don't want there to be any surprises for you. If you're going to get there by your works, know that you'll be, you'll be condemned on that day. You'll be the object of God's wrath. Do not think that God will be impressed by your morality, your humanitarian efforts, your work ethic, your job status, or your financial wealth. We do not impress God by our works. 
I mean, think about it. He created everything with the word of his mouth. There's nothing you or I do that he's going, wow, I, I couldn't do that. There's nothing you or I do. So again, so if we're not saved by works, if works is not the vehicle that brings us righteousness and justification, how are we saved? Paul then says in verse 11, the righteous shall live by faith. We come, we, we begin the Christian life by faith. We live the Christian life by faith. Christians are characterized by faith. If works, and we've talked about this before as we've been in the book of Galatians, if works means doing and earning, then faith means receiving and trusting. So we have doing and earning under works and, and receiving and trusting under faith. And so then in verse 13, Paul is going to tell us how Jesus saves us from the curse of the law. And by telling us how Jesus saves us from the curse of the law, he's going to tell us this is what we have faith in. So this brings us to our next question. What does it mean to have faith in the cross of Jesus? This is what Paul wants us to understand. You are not justified by works. We're to have faith in the cross of Jesus. So what does that mean? Verse 13, we'll read it again. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Those are some of the greatest words in the Bible. Christ redeemed us from the law. Paul shown that all of mankind is cursed. There's a darkness that surrounds us. We've tried to trust in our works rather than Christ for salvation. That's helpless. So in verse 13, the light of the gospel of Jesus bursts into the darkness. There's hope. Christ redeems. And notice it does not say Christ tried to redeem us. Christ hopes to redeem us. Christ gave his best effort to redeem us. It says Christ redeems. So this isn't like a wish. Well, Jesus is coming down and said, I don't know. I'll just give it my best shot. Let's just see what happens if I go to the cross and... Maybe it'll end up good or, you know, roll the dice. But Paul's saying, no, Jesus comes so he will redeem. So what does it mean to be redeemed? Let me give three words. These are in your, your outline. Three words that help us understand what it means to have faith in Jesus. So if you're going to say, I have faith in Jesus, it includes at least these three words. First word is Purchased. So when we come across the word redeemed in the Bible, it often can be referred to as, as, a, as a ransom, as a purchase price. And it was often used uh, when a slave's freedom was purchased. When a slave became a free man, he had been redeemed or he had been ransomed. The price of his freedom had been paid. And so the Bible tells us that we are slaves to sin. We are born in this world, with the, with the nature, with the desire within our heart to rebel and sin against God. And so, Christ has come that he would pay the debt of our sins. We owe a debt, and what we understand through all the Old Testament and through the New Testament, that the penalty of sin is death which is why in the Old Testament we see their sacrifices. People say, why is there so much blood in the Old Testament? Because we are a sinful people. And the only way we stand righteous before God is through the blood. There has to be death. And so ultimately, all of those Old Testament sacrifices, every single one of them points 
to the coming of Jesus Christ, who he will be our perfect sacrifice, and he will pay the penalty of our sin by his death. So Jesus died on the cross to pay our penalty so that through his death, we would be set free from the penalty of sin. That's number one. We've been purchased. The price has been paid. Number two, it's been satisfied. When Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God. Every ounce of wrath that you and I deserve because we are sinful was calculated and it was poured out upon God or upon Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus didn't pay some part, some or part of the price. At the cross, Jesus didn't give just a down payment and we now have to do the rest or, or he will do something else later. At the cross, Jesus paid it all. If you remember when Jesus was crucified, you can go to the, the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see how they describe that. We're told that creation itself shook. Rocks were split in two and darkness covered the land. Creation itself felt and reflected the wrath of God being poured out on the sun. And notice I said, it's God's wrath poured out on Jesus. Jesus' death was not to pay off Satan. Sometimes there's confusion there. We have sinned against God. By our sins, we've offended God. We have not offended Satan. Satan is quite happy with our sins. He wants to lead everyone into rebellion against God. We have sinned and we've offended God. God is the one who is the perfect righteous judge. God is the one who is infinite wrath directed toward those who would sin against him. And so Jesus comes and at the cross satisfies the wrath of God so we could be forgiven and set free. And because of that, because Jesus redeems us and fully satisfies the wrath of God, we're told we will never, ever, ever, ever experience God's wrath. Which you all know, many of you know Romans 8.1, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why is there no condemnation, no wrath for the believer? Because Jesus absorbed the entire wrath. He satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. Sometimes as Christians, when bad things come our way, we want to think that God's pouring out his wrath. I didn't read my Bible study. I didn't pray today. I messed up today. So now I'm the object of God's wrath and God's going to direct all hellfire against me. But that's poor theology. And we need to know that. Because we're told that Jesus satisfies the wrath. He fully and absolutely redeems us at the cross. So now there's no condemnation for you or against you. Now you might say, but how? How is it Jesus pays the price of, of my sins and he satisfies the, God's wrath? And that brings us to the third word, substitution. Notice the words in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus' death on the cross was not an accident. Neither was it simply an act of heroism. The cross is not like a soldier jumping on a grenade in order to save his friends. At the cross, Jesus takes your sins and my sins on himself as if he had committed them. 
at the cross, Jesus becomes the liar, becomes the adulterer, becomes the murderer, becomes the idolater. He becomes sin so that we who trust in him would be righteous and saved. So he comes as our substitute. So this means your sins were not just wiped under the rug, said, well, you know, somebody else came and and just paid the price and they're good. No, he came and took them on himself as if he had actually been the one to commit them. So when the judge pronounces his verdict of guilty and pours out his wrath, the wrath that should have been against you is fully directed at Jesus Christ on the cross standing as our substitute. So when you believe in him, he's taken your sin and thus your wrath that you deserve and he gives you his righteousness. That's what happens at the cross. We looked at this a couple weeks ago and we called it the great exchange and we looked at 2 Corinthians 5.21 which illustrates that. So you can go back to that verse and look at that as well. Earlier, we said the law is a taskmaster. It demands perfection. The problem is it, it, it can't make you perfect, and there's nothing you can do to meet those demands. But when we come to God, don't think that the level of perfection has been lowered. Oh, the, the law demands perfection. Good thing we just go to God. No, no, he demands perfection. The law is a reflection of his perfect, righteous character, morality. So God doesn't lessen the demands on us, but what he does is by his grace and mercy and love, he provides the means in which we can be saved and forgiven so that by his grace, we'd be given his righteousness. So his righteousness has never been compromised. He meets it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life, so his righteousness would be given to those who have faith. He goes to the cross so that he would take the wrath of God for all those who believe in him so they would be righteous and forgiven for all of eternity. Faith in Jesus means you have been redeemed. It means you have been saved. The cross was designed in past eternity as the means, the only means, in which God would obtain a people who would worship him for all of eternity. No other means. This is why in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, we read, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, came to be served, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Jesus came. He came to go to the cross. It's been his will, which was set in place before creation was ever formed, that one day the Son of Man would come and through his death, purchase a people so that only By the grace of God, would anyone ever stand in his presence, worshiping him and enjoying him for all of eternity? So what does it mean to put your faith in the cross of Jesus? To put your faith in Jesus Christ is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth so he would stand in our place on the cross and pay the price for our sins, fully satisfying the wrath of God and graciously giving us his perfect righteousness. That's redemption. That's what it means when when Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He met the full requirement of the law and gives us his righteousness. To have faith in Christ is to believe Jesus redeemed you at the cross. To have faith in Jesus is to put all of your eggs in one basket. It says, I fully and absolutely trust in Jesus. His life, his death, 
and the resurrection. I trust nothing in myself, absolutely everything in Christ. So then the question is, have you trusted in Jesus? Is this the Jesus that you know? Son of God, went to the cross, died for you, rose again victoriously. And if you believe in him, your sins have been paid for and you've been given his righteousness. Is that the truth that you know? If you believed in that, you're redeemed. No curse, no wrath against you forever. And that judgment by God is irrevocable and irreversible. It's the glory that we have in Christ. Have you trusted in Jesus? Why trust in anything else that has no possibility of saving you when Christ has come to the cross and guarantees your redemption? Trusting in works is like trusting in the train without any train tracks. It cannot deliver. It cannot move. It offers no hope. This brings us to the last question. So what's the result? We can't do it by works. It's all by faith. So what's the result? What's the result of faith in the cross of Jesus? So look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, we get the blessing of Abraham. This is where we really need to know Old Testament because otherwise you're going, great. Who's Abraham? And what did he get? Well, if you go back to verse 6, again, this is what Jake preached a few weeks ago. We read, just as Abraham believed God and was counted righteous, justified before God. We get the blessing of Abraham. We too are saved. We are forgiven by faith in Jesus. Like Abraham, we are counted righteous before God. That's the first blessing. Secondly, remember, to be cursed by God is to never experience the blessing of his presence or rule. So to be blessed by God would to be experiencing the blessing of his presence and rule. And in verse 14, we see we are given the spirit of God. Verse 14 says we've received the spirit of God so that we would forever experience his blessing, his presence within us, the goodness and the mercy and the grace of his rule in our life. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, Paul gives this beautiful description of the gospel, and he ends it in verses 13 and 14 by saying this, In him, meaning in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If you've believed in Christ, you've been given the Spirit of God. He's the guarantee of your inheritance. No take backs. God says, I've given you the Holy Spirit, and because he is in you and dwells in you, know you are saved. Know that you are justified. Know that you are righteous. Know that you are the recipient of all the blessings of God. At this moment, we do still live in a sinful world. We do still experience pain and trials and sorrow, but because the Spirit dwells in us, we know we're forgiven. We know we are righteous. We know that no sorrow or trial that comes our way is God's wrath. It might be very well the discipline in which he's forming us more like him. It is the very means in which he's using to bring others into Christ. It's the means in which he grows us in our faith. 
What we understand is the Spirit of God will give us grace, strength, comfort, joy, peace, and perseverance to endure all trials as we wait for the return of Christ. This could sound too good to be true. We deserve the curse, but because of God's grace and through faith, we're absolutely saved. So who can experience this? Who can be the recipient of this? Verse 14, Paul says, because of Jesus, the blessing of Abraham... It's not just for Jews, but it's for Gentiles also. This means anyone who hears the good news of Jesus and believes in him is forgiven, justified, and saved. So whether you're Jew, Gentile, black, white, male, female, slave, or free, if you have trusted in Christ, you are saved, you are righteous, you are forgiven by God. Paul wants us to know there's there's one means for humanity to be saved, and that's by faith in the cross of Jesus. There's no other way. This is the message we believe. This is the message that we proclaim. And we need to know that the world, the world is sitting in the train, hoping that the train is going to bring them into eternal life. But we know the train will not and cannot offer them any hope. Everyone on the train is cursed. Everyone on the train is cursed. And if you're not in Christ, then you're cursed. The world needs the church to know the truth and the beauty of the gospel. The world needs us to tell them that salvation is only in the cross of Jesus. So know that. It's exactly what Paul's doing at this moment. The church is confused. He comes back. Need to know the cross of Jesus. And as we go out each and every week, we go out with the message of the cross of Jesus. And if you've not yet trusted in Jesus today, I encourage you, believe today. Confess Jesus as Lord, and you are redeemed today. Forgiven, justified, made righteous by God himself. And if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, know the gospel of of Christ. Know the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. Teach your children teach your grandchildren to put their hopes not in themselves, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ each and every day. Jesus alone redeems us for eternal life with God. Hope is only in Christ. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we come to you now. And Lord, we, we understand by, by your word, that every single one of us is born in this world cursed because we all seek and strive to earn our salvation, earn whatever we believe is eternal life and hope by our works. And God, we praise you that by grace we've been saved through faith, through faith in Jesus Christ at the cross. Lord, I pray that every single person in here would know that. I pray that we would all be on guard against the countless ways in which we are tempted to trust in ourselves, to turn our works into a ladder as a means of earning our salvation or earning favor before you. God, may we constantly repent of any act of, or any thought in which we could earn favor before you. May we realize that the only reason we stand before you, the only reason we will be brought into your heaven and spend everlasting life with you is by grace in Jesus Christ at the cross. 
May we know that. May we trust in that. And may we believe in that truth. God, I pray for the parents. I pray for grandparents in this room. May they not be passive. but God, may they share the truth of the gospel each and every day with their children. May they demonstrate it with the life that they live. And may they communicate it with the words that they speak to their children, to their grandchildren, to their loved ones every day. God, may we go forth from this room realizing everyone we see that does not know you is under the curse. Fill us with boldness. God, your spirit dwells within us that we would have words, that we would have understanding on how to speak and to share the truth of the gospel. So fill us with boldness. May we, may we not be fearful of man's response, but may we risk everything in all of our relationships for the sake of telling people about you, that they would no longer trust in their works and be cursed, but they would trust in your son and receive the blessing. The blessing of the gospel only comes by grace. Father, we praise you. You have redeemed us in the cross of Jesus and Jesus alone. In your name, Jesus, amen.